This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Top of the hour, David Amber from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada stopped by. Uh, we'll talk about the Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers getting underway this evening. Vince McCogliano from Lohud.com. What happened with the Rangers and what's next? Uh, and Barry Keane, drummer for the late Gordon Lightfoot, stops by to conclude the program today. Very much looking forward uh, to hearing some recollections and some stories uh, about the greats. Gordon Lightfoot with Barry. In the meantime, speaking of greats, uh, the great John Forslund, Seattle Kraken play-by-play voice also from the NHL on TNT stops by. John, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. It's my pleasure, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. So the question is how, but before we get to how did Seattle do that against the defending Stanley Cup champions, I'm curious, at what point this season, did John Forslund say, hold on a second here. I think there's really some there there with the Seattle Kraken. I think this team can do something. Was there a moment? Was there a stretch of games? Was it the uh, the road trip in January? What was it for you? Yeah, you, you hit it. It was it was definitely the road trip in January 7-0. and You know, no one has ever seen that before. I've never been a yeah. part of something like that, watching that. Um, so that was, that was amazing. And, and it was the beginning of the trip. The first game was in Edmonton they won that game. And then they had a travel day on a Wednesday and flew all the way to Toronto and beat the Leafs on Thursday. It was after that leaf game. I said, that's pretty impressive because no matter how good the team is, uh, travel, wear and tear fatigue, as you know, uh, scheduling, this all has a big part in what happens during the regular season. And no matter what the talent level is, sometimes that can, that can level off a game and it didn't happen. So they continued on that run. They went to Boston, they beat them in regulation and the Bruins lost to them for the first time in their building, uh, in, in regulation, uh, to any team. And so as it went along and he came out of that trip at seven and oh, that's when I realized these guys have been playing pretty well for a long time and no one's really noticing, but they'll just continue on. And sure. They had their pitfalls during the season. Uh, they had some challenges they had to overcome, but their balance scoring uh, was a big part of the regular season success. Their balance scoring was a big part of why they're able to oust the Stanley cup champions. And, and here they are, here they are in the second round of the playoffs. It's a great story. You know, and I don't think that anybody should be surprised that, uh, that after the first round, considering, you know, what he was able to do with Tampa, that Yanni Gord uh, stands above everybody else, albeit by one point here or two points there. But nonetheless, my, my point, I, th- I think you understand, Yanni Gord comes out of it the leading scorer for the Seattle Kraken after seven games. Well, he's, he, as you know, he's built for the playoffs, right? This is a player that has playoff totally. fervor in his DNA. Um, he's a winner. He's come a long way to just to make the National Hockey League. And then as soon as he made it, he made a difference. He he elevates his game. He draws people into the fight. He gets under the opponent's skin. He's a wonderful human being, great family, um, and wants to be part of, uh, of this, of this situation with the Seattle Kraken and their leadership core and watching him in the first year. And I think that's the one thing about it. I'm, I'm lucky, you know, I was around the first year of this. So I got to see a lot of these guys come in with, with high pedigrees and uh, used to winning and going through a lot of losing in the first season and a lot of below expectation stuff and hearing some noise from the outside and going through a COVID season. And I think a lot of those things carried over in a newfound energy in the second season. He's at the head of the bus, his line with Ellie Tolvanen and Oliver Bjorkstrand from the first of the year has been Seattle's best line in, in total. And because of that, they're relied upon heavily by Dave Haxtell in the playoffs. Let me ask you about Bjorkstrand, because that last game was spectacular. He he probably could have had five goals uh, in that game. Yeah. It seemed as if, and you've seen this with players before, every time the, the puck is on their stick, some, something happens. I mean, I haven't seen, and I remember watching Bjorkstrand when he used to play for Portland in the Western Hockey League, and he was on a, you know, maybe the best the best line in the entire junior, uh, in the entire CHL. Um, I haven't seen him have a game like that. Maybe you have. I haven't seen Bjorkstrand have a game like that since he played junior hockey. Was that the best you've seen Bjorkstrand? That's the best I, I've seen him as a Kraken, and the only thing that came close for me was uh, we covered at NBC the first-round series against Tampa in 2019, and as a member of the Blue Jackets in that, in that surprising 
sweep. He was fantastic. And that's, I yep. think, when he started to take to John Tortorella's coaching and elevate his game and round it out a little bit and go from an offensive player that's a real threat with a great shot and a power play option to a guy who you can rely upon in, in three zones. Um, he had a hard time you know, getting adapted to a new team uh, with the Kraken at the beginning of the season. But again, as I just said, you know, that line with Yanni Gord and Tolvanen who came off waivers uh, yeah. just before Christmas, they've really become uh, a steady line, a steady line offensively, defensively, you know, the whole package. And, and he was, the well, aside from Grubauer, right, he was the best player in Game 7. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me get to Grubauer here because, you know, season to season, um, you know, no one's, uh, I, I don't think, raised their level of, uh, of elite performance quite like Philip Grubauer has. Um, I don't think it was lost on anybody that was against the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, 9.26 save percentage after seven games. Uh, listen, Igor Shosturkin was fantastic for the New York Rangers, no doubt. Jake Ottinger for the Dallas Stars. But I don't know that there is a goaltender in the playoffs so far that did more for his team in that opening round than Philip Grubauer with the Seattle Kraken. Your thoughts on the seven games he's just presented? And he needed to, right? So you go into the series with the old uh, narrative of this. You know, Philip Grubauer's first season, way below expectation, big free agent contract after being a Vesna finalist yeah. with Colorado the season before, right? And the second season was okay at the front end of the year. He was injured. Martin Jones carried the water for a long time, uh, really played great. And then Jones leveled off. Grubauer came back. The last two months of the season, Grubauer was really starting to establish, you know, his game. Uh, he was more square, more refined, spot on games, practices, the whole thing, got to see him every day. I think he's a guy who put a lot of pressure on himself to kind of justify that new contract and for the first time had to live up to something like that. Uh, didn't quite work out. But um, going into the series, you know, what was the case here? Is it the fact that Philip Grubauer had a built-in uh, comfort zone against his old team or was it his old team that knew all of his flaws and saw him every day and could pick him apart? Well, the, the former won in this argument and, and Philip Grubauer established himself in this series, uh, carried the team, carried the team through Game 7, they're going to need him if they have any hope of getting out of the second round. He's going to have to out-goal 10 Jake Ottinger. That's pretty obvious. Uh, so, you know what? Good yeah. for him. Uh, really a great guy, as you know. And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a wonderful story. I hope it continues for him. Yeah, it, it, and it's a lot of fun to watch, too. Like, you're right there, yeah. you know, up close and personal for all of it. Just watching it from afar, it's a, it's a wonderful story. And stories like this, you uh, you don't want to end. Um, so how do they do it then? So what what is the, um, you know, what, what's the secret sauce here? What, what's the, the magic ingredient here? What's the, what are the secret spices here? Like, how did... I, I think part of it, too, is with all due respect, you know, Colorado was, was pretty dinged up here. And whether it was oh, yeah. you know, Landeskog not available, whether it was in a Chushkin situation, like there was there was a lot working against Colorado. But mind you, defending Stanley Cup champions for a reason. But how did Seattle do this against the mighty Avs? Well, that's always in play, right? In the playoffs, the eventual champion will always say, yeah. well, we not only played great, but we had breaks too, right? So you have to have that. And there, I don't want to obviously discount the Kraken, but you're right. Colorado, not even close to the same team that won the cup. So that's another story. But what the Kraken did against them was they didn't change. They didn't change their identity. They didn't try to um, adapt to whatever was coming at them from the other side. There were matchups within the series, you know, against their big players. There's no question about that but the Kraken have played the same way from the beginning of training camp you know to this point and that is a, a real solid four-line approach that doesn't rely on one or two scoring lines or superstar players three defense pairings that have been healthy and together for the entire season a goaltender that's coming around at the end improvement in special teams in the second half of the season that was an issue in the front end um, all of these things have worked and a lot of the stuff that Dave Haxtell has done coaching wise has also been been under the radar so um, they, they've done a great job as a group uh, this is one of the best team performances I've ever seen 
Um, and now they get into this round. Now they played Dallas three times in 11 days at the end of the season, and they beat them once in overtime, lost the other two. And one of those went to overtime that they lost. So they're in the neighborhood, but to be fair, in those three games, Dallas had something about the way they were playing that, that frustrated the Kraken. So I'll be interested to see, you know, who controls the middle of the ice, you know, how dominant, you know, a guy like Haskinen could be in the series, you know, is that, is that scoring line, that first line going to be too much, you know, for the Kraken, you know, especially if Pavelski's healthy again. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see how this goes. Um, but the Kraken don't have to worry about anything but themselves, which is an old adage in hockey. And I think that's what they're going to do. They're not really going to care uh, about what's coming at them. Um, they're just going to play their game, throw it out there, and see how far it goes. Because their game, quote unquote, the way they play uh, yeah. over two weeks can do can frustrate another team. And I think that's what they rely on. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Joe Pavelski a second ago, and technically he's a uh, he's a game time decision. Uh, for tonight for the Dallas Stars. Yet this morning at practice, there he is again, uh, 15 right. minutes. Well, you've seen this countless times, like 15 minutes worth of tips um, to, to kick off the practice today. That's Joe Pavelski. And, you know, the, the, the great saying about Joe Pavelski is too old, too slow, but too good. Like that's, mm-hmm. that is the, the Joe Pavelski story here. You're the Seattle Kraken. Joe Pavelski re-enters. Maybe the best player in front of the net in the NHL. Nobody, with all due respect to the Anders Lees and the Wayne Simmons, etc., nobody tips pucks like Joe Pavelski. You're the Seattle defense. What do you do? What can you do against Joe Pavelski? Well, it's an excellent question. You know, what, what can you do? Um, those were, uh, you know, hockey minds way above my IQ um, because it's the high tip, right? <laughs> how do you defend? How, yeah. do, how do you defend the high tip because it stretches <laughs> out the ice, right? So, yes. so you look at you look at his body of work, and it's it's there. It works against everybody, but it's going to test their schemes. It's going to test their five on five schemes and really their penalty killing schemes, which have been good. Um, they've they adjusted yeah. um, their penalty killing from a kind of a, a stagnant sag back in the front end of the year, which was it wasn't even seventy percent efficient, to a to a top five, mm-hmm. top ten penalty kill. New Year's Day to this point. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can handle that. But Pavelski had a big hand in those three games that were played at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's a difference maker, and he kind of uh, settles that line a little bit and has settled every line he's been on throughout his career. And it's not by accident. You're right, because you, when you're around him and you see him and you cover him, you see how diligent he is with his practice habits and how much he's worked on that skill alone. Uh, one of the oh. greatest players we've ever seen. Absolutely. Um, do we know anything more about Jared McCann? Getting back to the, yeah. the Seattle ledger here, anything more about their forty goal score? Yeah. No, we don't know much. Um, you know, I'm preparing to do um, um, Vegas and Edmonton games two and three for TNT. So um, you know, I'm not I'm not around them to see who's in Dallas right now. Um, but I but I do know, and I've been talking with everybody there. Um, it doesn't appear because the team went right from Denver you know, into Dallas. So as the series goes along, as it comes back to Seattle, I think it becomes a little bit more realistic. Now he could be there and it could be under the radar and that's not unusual in the playoffs because we're always last to know these things. Um, but it, it's really too sure. bad. He was a, he was writing a great story, 40 goals, as you point out, and uh, was having a oh. remarkable year. Let, let me ask you one more story. And then we'll, one more question then we'll, we'll let you get on with your day. Um, Seattle Kraken fans, like that building uh, on game uh, game three, T-Mobile Arena, that was bonkers. That was berserk. That was loud. That was incredible energy. Do you have a thought or two about Kraken fans from last season to this season to this, you know, heightened frenzy where, you know, the team makes it to the playoffs and the team knocks off the Stanley Cup champions here? A little bit spoiled, albeit, John, but uh, how are Kraken fans right now? Well, they're becoming true fans, right? And I knew this would happen. We all know this. We all know this. If you were telling someone new to the game, you would say, watch the playoffs and, and get, a, get an opportunity to follow a playoff series and tell me how you feel about the sport. It's the greatest game in the world, and it just goes to a completely different level in the playoffs. And I told people this in the first season, but they, many people, unless they really had seen this before or came from a different market or were used to this, had no idea until you experience it. So now here it is, right? I think the way to describe the 
Kraken fans in the first year and in, in half of this season is like going to a party where you're really excited to get there. There's lots of bells and whistles and you know you're going to be entertained and you get there and you're having a real good time and then halfway through it kind of fizzles a little bit. And if the team's losing, there's your fizzle. And then you walk out of the arena and you're like, well, that was nice. The building's nice. The, 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 uh, the, the, all the, um, the stuff they have around it, the concessions and all the luxury items they have, that, that's great. Uh, the team lost and it was okay. Um, but I'm not sure how I feel about it. But now that they've experienced the playoff series, they've been in the building to see this. They've hated an opponent. They, 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 they took apart Kale McCarr, uh, you know, right or wrong, no matter what the situation is, a fan base will do that in a playoff series. Right? So they had one player to boo. They did mm-hmm. that. They saw Jordan Everly score in overtime at home. They felt the acceler- uh, the exhilaration of getting into overtime and the passion that comes with it and the joy of winning the home team winning and going home and singing in the, in the hallways and the horns beeping and all that kind of thing. The other thing about Seattle is, is a tremendous sports town with a hearty, hearty, hearty fan base. And the Seahawks are all about that. So I knew there'd be a little bit of that identity that would come to the national hockey league, you know, with this franchise from the Seahawks and just that makeup of a fan. So as this thing goes along, it's going to be wonderful. The building is second to none. I've told you that, and you got to see it to believe it. And the way the seats are pitched for hockey, it is absolutely sensational. Uh, it's become one of the most important uh, organizations, and that's become one of the most important buildings in short order uh, in the entire National Hockey League. Listen, John, have have fun with the next round. Um, this night's thanks. Oilers series uh, looks like it should be a good one. Uh, thanks for sharing all of your expertise and knowledge about the Kraken with me today. Much, much appreciated. Have fun with round two. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. There is John Forsland, um, play-by-play voice for the Seattle Kraken, also working for the NHL on TNT, and as you just heard, uh, working the Vegas Golden Knights Edmonton Oilers series. Um, coming up in hour two, David Amber is going to stop by here in a couple of moments. We'll, we'll tee up tonight's uh, action, and that is the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers. Late game tonight, the Seattle Kraken face off uh, against the Dallas Stars. Um, also, Vince Mercogliano from Blowhide. What's next for the Rangers, and how quickly does it happen? Um, I wonder if the volcanoes get in a virgin here, and by that I mean a sacrifice, as we've talked about uh, in hour one with Elliot Friedman. I, I do wonder if Gerard Gallant uh, ends up falling on the sword for this uh, this first round exit uh, by the New York Rangers. What does this mean for uh, players? What does this mean for the future of the New York Rangers, both immediate and long term? So Vince Mercogliano comes up in hour two, and Barry Keane, uh, longtime drummer for Gordon Lightfoot, stops by in hour two as well, um, encouraging you to share your stories. Here's another one. I got introduced to Gordon's music around 84 in Germany when my sixth grade English teacher played Canadian Railroad Trilogy to us. Loved the song and it kind of stayed with me. Man, Gordon Lightfoot songs do that. It kind of stayed with me, but I didn't hear it again until decades later when I looked it up on the internet and became a Gordon Lightfoot fan for real. That's a great thing. Stayed with me. Lightfoot has that with his songs. Something about them stays with you forever. I know exactly what that means. Hour 2 is coming up across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Merrick's show continues. David Amber on the other side. opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up in about 15 minutes' time, Vince Procogliano from Loha.com. And the question is, What's next? For the New York Rangers, uh, Vince covers the uh, the Broadway blue shirts, and now after a first round exit at the hands of those upstart pesky New Jersey Devils, uh, the questions abound. What happens with Gerard Gallant? Is he the sacrifice? What happens with some of the high priced talent they brought in around trade deadline time? And what happens to the underperforming talent? 
currently on that roster. Vince Mercogliano coming up in 15. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, Barry Keane, longtime drummer for Gordon Lightfoot, stops by. Uh, stories about Gordon Lightfoot, who passed last night uh, at the age of 84. Meantime, from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada, he is David Amber, and he joins me now. How's it going, DA? Two Canadian teams through to the second round. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, it's good. You know what? One of the one of the one of the moments I won't forget. Like if you were to ask me what the big moments were, just from a from a spectator standpoint, looking at the mob scene yeah. outside of both you know Maple Leaf Square Game Six, eliminating the Lightning, and yeah. outside, more importantly, outside Rogers Place, where you had fifteen thousand people in Rogers Place watching, and then you had another whatever it was, tens of thousands outside and, and, you know, enjoying the festivities, remembering that the game is in L.A. Like, that's what's so mind-boggling. It just shows you the insatiable appetite right now for, for hockey in Canada. You know, it's interesting. I can recall, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad you started with this because I can recall the story. This would have been, uh, when was I first at Hockey Night? 2008, maybe 2009. And this, you know, it, it almost started not spontaneously because it is planned, but and I believe it was Pittsburgh initially um, that they started to have these viewing parties outside the rink when the team when the team was on the road. It seemed like a lot of fun. And I remember part of the um, oh, this is so backwards, DA. Part of the conversation was um, whoever whoever had the, the the U.S. broadcast rights at that point were concerned that. They didn't want people all congregating outside the rink because it was going to hurt their viewership numbers. So they're trying to encourage teams not to do this because they wanted everybody at home watching on their televisions, DA. First of all, that wasn't that long ago. But doesn't that feel like, I'm sure you remember that story. Doesn't that feel like a million years ago now? And it wasn't that long ago. It literally is a million years ago. Think about that. Imagine we said, we don't want anyone watching on their phones. You have to be sitting in front of a television. <laughs> um, you know, ignore the internet. Um, yeah, it seems like such a, an antiquated notion. And if nothing else, I mean, they've, they've, they've found a way to monetize it for better or for worse. I mean, they charge yeah. you sometimes for these viewing parties. They're, they're selling merchandise. They're selling uh, concessions, you know, drinks and food. And sure. quite honestly, it's a tailgate party. And you should always encourage a tailgate party. All that is is... I think especially yeah. after COVID, you know, we missed out on that communal experience. And, 100%. you know, as we were running that video before Game 7 of Boston, Florida, and we were showing the scenes the night previous in, in Edmonton and Toronto, I said, you know, undeniably sports brings joy to communities. I mean, it's the one thing or is one of the very few things where there's groups of people who otherwise would never come in contact with one another who might not have other things in common in their walks of life and what they do and the areas they live in, but it brings them together and you have this one great shared experience. And I think that's, that's what's been fun to see. And obviously now there's only eight teams left and you're going to see these, these viewing parties grow and grow and grow. And even in maybe non-traditional markets, whether it's Florida or Carolina or whatever, I think you're going to start seeing more of that uh, coming up in the next few weeks as well. I, I, I think that's such an excellent point um, to, to the point where, and it kind of sounds goofy when I say I don't think there is anything, well, as far as professional goes, I don't think there's anything really, um, there isn't something called sports. To me, it all fits under the umbrella of both entertainment and culture as well, because I'm with you. Like, when you think of, like, a lot of the bonding moments that countries have, specifically, and we'll just, you know, chisel it down to the obvious here, you know, this country, you look at some of the the great moments that have brought this mm-hmm. country together, and it's all around it's all around sports. You know, whether it's, you know, it's uh, Donovan Bailey or whether mm-hmm. it's 1972, like generally, and again, technically it is sports. It is athletic competition, but it's also about entertainment and it's also about culture. Like I'd be fine if, and I'm going to use an outdated reference here. Not, people might not understand what I'm talking about, but there used to be something, and technically there still are, called newspapers. And I always kind of, after a while, you know, working in sports, kind of found the sports page weird because the more that I would read about sports, I'd say, this is entertainment and this is culture and this is identity. And what is this weird thing called sports? But I'm with you. Like there are so many things revolving around um, athletic competition that really do fall under a different domain. Like, do, I think we take it for granted. Like, do you feel the same way that this idea of, of bringing people together through sport, I really do think that we take that for granted. 
Well, I, I think we missed it. And I think we I, I think we take it less for granted now than pre the pandemic where we were denied all of that. You know, so much, you know, one of the strangest experiences we all had as broadcasters was going into the studio when the play, players were in the bubble. And it was exciting for us to have an escape to watch the, the, the guys compete hard and the Lightning win the Stanley Cup. But it wasn't the same without the fans. It just wasn't, you know. And, and even the following yeah. year, you know, in, at the Stanley Cup final in Montreal where – you know, we were able to go to the games, but I think they said, you know, 4,000 fans. I think it was more like 8,000 fans, but regardless, they, they were limiting, you know, <laughs> 4, they were limiting, yeah, okay. they were limiting the capacity and it just, it wasn't the same yeah. experience. So much of the joy, you can say the same thing about going to a movie. I, I'm not one of those guys who goes to a movie alone only because I like to be able to chuckle at a scene or be frightened at a scene and, and kind of elbow, you know, if, if I'm there with my son or my wife or whatever and be like, oh my God, and it's that shared experience yeah. and it's the same I think sports provides that same sense of community, and it's just so important. And, and we're seeing it, and we're seeing it right now. And I, I don't know if we take it for granted. I, I think sometimes we forget how important that is. Um, but, you know, what we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks during the Stanley Cup playoffs has refreshed our memory how cool that experience can be. So what also comes along with that, specifically with Canadian hockey teams, as you well know, is nervousness and anxiety. <laughs> And if you look at Edmonton and if you look at Toronto, um, which team's fans do you think as they head into the second round here, Toronto against Florida, game one tonight, Edmonton versus Vegas, which fans do you think are more nervous? Now, a lot of this might just be based on expectation. Like, I think there's an understanding that the Edmonton Oilers have a legit chance to win the Stanley Cup here. Um, But which fan base do you think is more anxious about the second round? That's a great question. I, I honestly sense a little bit of swagger for both the Leaf fan base and the Oiler fan base. I think, you know, both those teams lost game one of their series. I mean, it's been such a strange playoff, right? If you think about it, the teams winning game one went two and six in the series. Only Seattle and Carolina won game one and ultimately won the series. And think about the panic after the Leafs got the doors blown off in game one. And then after they lost game five, everyone's like, here we go again. And in Edmonton, the same thing, like what's going on? And the Oilers, you know, after they were down two games to one and trailing three, nothing in game four, the, the panic mode had set in. I had people who are Oilers fans texting me, go, oh my God, I can't believe we're going to get eliminated. And it's like, well, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> you know, so I actually think there's a little bit of swagger there. I don't think there's necessarily panic or anxiety. I think if anything, they both recognize that, um, you know, going into Vegas and having to take on a very good Vegas team, the top seed in the Western Conference is not going to be easy. But I also think there's a feeling like McDavid, Drysaddle's healthy. We have the firepower in Edmonton to get past them. And same with Toronto. I think, you know, it's funny. I was in the minority uh, maybe of people who I really wanted to see Boston, Toronto. I was like, you know what, if the Leafs are going to change this narrative and change everything, it might as well just slay the dragon, and that I would agree. be the Boston Bruins. And listen, it's not like Florida or Chumps at all. It's more just, it, it would be, it's a different feeling taking on Florida. So I do think there's, I wouldn't say arrogance or overconfidence, but I do think there's a level of confidence with the Leafs fan base that, hey, we're at home ice advantage, and this is a matchup that we, mm-hmm. we feel confident, you know, we can get through. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I don't know if there's great anxiety for either fan base. That can all change tonight if Florida goes out and beats the Leafs. You oh, can yeah. only imagine what it's going to be like <laughs> in the city tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, I think you know what it'll be like in this city tomorrow. I've seen it countless times after you. (laughs) Um, Let me circle back to, let me circle back to that Rangers devils game last Mm -hmm. night. And it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a shout out by the devils. And there's one moment in the game that, um, I mean, that the, the, the conversation has, has now bled into, into today. And that is the Jacob Truba hit on Timo Meyer. Now, mm-hmm. we used to see this regularly. You know, a player under the yeah. blue line, cutting across, gets met by, I don't know, insert your defenseman, Scott Stevens, Darius Kasparaitis, like whomever. Like, this mm-hmm. used to be a common occurrence, and it used to be one of those things where coaches remind you, don't do that underneath the blue line, and don't do that when that player is on the ice. Now, the league is in a much different place now. It's in a much different place by personnel and by vibe, and everything about the game is is different when it comes to when it comes to, to collisions. Um, but this one's really kind of opened up a uh, uh, opened up a discussion point about you know what should we do about these types of hits. 
Um, what should we do about these types of players? What should we do about players putting themselves in vulnerable positions? Like, there's no call, there's no supplemental. I think everyone looked at that and said, well, when you look at, you know, when you look at the, the hitting rules, uh, a lot of them... Oh, by the, by the way... I got a note from a manager yesterday um, after the hit, and you know Meyer went off and then came right back. And you know this this one note just said, "Wow, he got protocoled pretty fast, hey?" Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Yeah, that was a pretty quick, considering the nature of the violence of the hits." Uh, Timo Meyer came back uh, pretty quickly, but nonetheless, parked that conversation for a second. How did yeah. you see that hit, Da? And and where are you at in the conversation about hits like that? Well, what is the, and I was wondering this, what is the protocol? Is it 10 minutes? I, I actually don't know what the protocol timing is supposed to be. I'm not exactly sure. I'll, all I, and again, I'm just going by feel, and I'm just, I'm just grabbing the note here. It felt quick to me, it's, too. Uh, yeah, so I, I sent a note like uh, about it, and this manager sent back, I wonder the same, they protocoled him up real quick. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, uh, it, it just... No. It, 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 Maybe it's not time. Then, Maybe all, it's... Baseline questions, but I'm, I'm not sure. I, I would imagine, but given the nature of the score at that point, too, mm-hmm, don't you mm-hmm. sort of err on the side of caution and say, you know what, you're you're yeah. you're good to see this one. This guy I don't risk. know, but this is again an yeah. ongoing where, conversation. Where well, I mean, I think the PA uh, needs to take a leading charge in this when it comes to any of the player safety issues. The league, um, I don't think, is necessarily going to mandate things without the PA sort of jumping on board. You know, I've made uh, the guys all laugh at me because I make this whole thing about ear flaps. And I don't know, like Malkin and Crosby wear ear flaps and it doesn't provide 100% protection. But you look at some of the injuries that we've had in the last few years, you know, Brian Little's career was effectively ended by a slap shot to the side of his helmet where maybe an ear flap would have mitigated some of the damage. So I, I look at some of those things and say, I wonder why the PA hasn't instituted, you know, some other things or at least you know and i know a lot of the players kind of roll their eyes you know let us take the risk we want to take the risk um when it came to last night's hit though i'm not sure what you do as far as from a league standpoint i I didn't look at that and i know truba is excellent at walking the line and sometimes tiptoeing or stepping over that line i didn't think last night was one of those moments i think that was just an absolutely bone-crushing devastating hit uh, with uh, with a player in a vulnerable position, but who, again, as you sort of said right off the hop, like players aren't maybe taught to have their head up as they would have been, you know, in the last generation of players. The Nick Ronwalls and the Darian Hatchers aren't necessarily waiting. Uh, Jacob Truba is one of the exceptions in the league now. I don't know how you keep physicality and how you keep, you know, serious contact in the game and police that specific hit from last night. I, I really just don't have the answer. I, I definitely think trying to protect these guys as best possible has to be uh, paramount, but you have to keep the essence of the game as it is. Uh, I don't disagree. Um, okay, a couple of seconds here left with you. What do you mm-hmm. look for tonight in both these games? The Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers, and then later uh, the Seattle Kraken facing off against the, uh, against the Dallas Stars. Well, I mean, I think for Toronto, it's it's can you carry the momentum? I mean, you've now had a chance to exhale. You heard Mitch Marner, hey, my buddies are sending me videos celebrating. Like, that's fantastic. Do you go into this um, ready to be back at the engagement level you had in game six? I, I, I think game six might have been, you know, next to game two, their, their best game in that series versus Tampa. And they were badly outplayed in certain stretches, but they were always com- competitive and pushing back. And they're always fighting, it felt like, um, for their space on the ice. And I want to see that from Toronto. You need to see that from Toronto. You can't take this Florida team lightly, and I don't think they will. I'm interested if he was in net, by the way, for Florida. I heard you mentioning Alex Lyon first off. Like, boy, that would be quite a plot twist, eh? Uh, putting a Lyon in after how Bobrovsky <laughs> was in that last game. So, I mean, you just it, that's an interesting kind of compelling storyline. Um, I think Toronto matches up pretty well with Florida. I think they can't get caught up into the Matthew Kachuk show, and it's easy to get caught up in that. But I think, you know, to a lesser degree, they have their own guys who can be agitators, whether it's Bunting or Achari, some of those guys who can find their way under the skin of their yeah. opponents as well. So I think they got to stay above the fray there. So I'm interested to see because I do think 
you know, Florida lost game one and Toronto lost game one, and they ultimately both won their series. But I, I think you, this isn't a situation where you want to dig a hole. And Toronto could could put that seed of doubt into Florida a little bit with a convincing win tonight. Um, you know, Seattle, I don't know what to make of this cracking team. I, I thought Colorado was going to win that series. I, most people <laughs> did. And, you know, yeah. I'm, they're making believers out of a lot of us, right? And it, it's so strange to think of a team. This is, this is the thing you got to know about Seattle. I think they scored 18 goals in that series, 15 different goal scores. Like, it really is a team. Yep. They are taking on sort of that appearance of Vegas uh, 2.0 from 2018. It's fun to watch. I'm really interested to see, though, against, you know, Jake Ottinger, who you're, you're you know, I, I saw your interview you did with Jake, and he really is one of the best goalies, if not the best goalie in the league. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a formidable, formidable matchup, uh, Dallas versus Seattle. Yeah, this one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, okay, DA, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Always great catching up. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, two biggies tonight, and here we go. Second round action gets underway just after 7 o'clock Eastern. Thanks, bud. You be well. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care, Jeff. David Amber uh, from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, pre-game show getting underway tonight, Hockey Central, with your host, Ron McLean, 6.30 Eastern. Uh, puck drops between the Cats and the Leafs just after 7.00. Meanwhile, oh boy, what now for the New York Rangers? Uh, lose a seven-game series to the New Jersey Devils. The Battle of the Hudson goes the way of Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes and Dougie Hamilton, etc., etc., etc. And now the questions begin for the New York Rangers. What happens to the coach? Uh, what happens to the high-priced help that is either there uh, already and under contract long-term or some of the players they brought in around trade deadline. And when we have big questions like this about the Rangers, we bring in one man. He is Vince Mercogliano from Lohut.com, and he joins me once again. Vince, how are you today? Good, Jeff. Finally uh, trying to catch up on some sleep here. Uh, well, you're gonna, well I, I don't know that you're going to be able to catch up on it in the next little while. There's going to be a lot of Ranger news. No, probably not uh, this to digest. Yeah, probably not we, this uh, we think so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. You're not you're not sleeping this week, pal. Maybe next week, but we'll see. As you well know, you know, the the owner there may erupt at any time, so it's always an adventure, uh, although Knicks are fun. Um so what happens now? Like like what we're sort of looking right now and saying, you know, does Gerard Gallant get the blindfold and and walk the plank on this one for the for the failures of the New York Rangers or does this go even deeper? The floor is yours. What happens first now? with the Rangers. Jeff, your timing is impeccable because I'm just finishing off a story about this exact topic. And, and there's a list of okay. things that Chris Drury is going to have to check off in the coming months. But, you know, you touched on it. The, the first thing that he's going to have to decide probably in the next couple days is going to be what happens with Gerard Gallant. And I can just tell you that my early sense is that he could be in trouble. I, I don't know if anything yep. has been finalized. I'm certainly not going to report that at this moment. It's possible that he could be waiting to do exit interviews with players to get some input on them before he finalizes any decision, but it's also possible he's made that decision already. I, I think I've, I've spoken with you about this before. There were conversations in the organization about possibly making a change during the season. We all remember the Rangers got off to that slow start. Yeah. They only won 11 of their first 26 games. They were floundering. Uh, there was some rumblings that I was hearing. I know other people were hearing as well that it was something that was being seriously considered and had things continued to snowball, it sounded to me like it could have reached that point maybe sometime in December. But... A lot of us will remember the Rangers did turn around their season from there. It started a lot of people, at least the most memorable moment was that loss to the Chicago Blackhawks where Jacob Truba threw the helmet and yelled at the bench. And then the Rangers rattled off seven straight wins from there. You know, that sort of saved Gallant in the moment and ensured that he would get the opportunity to ride out the rest of the season. But his future was always going to be contingent on what happened in the playoffs. And when the Rangers decided to go yeah. all in, when they not only made the move to get Tarasenko, but also did all the cap maneuvering that we saw to bring in Kane, that ramped up the pressure yeah. to win right now. Both of those guys are on expiring contracts, unlikely to be back next season. Those are win-now moves, and then the Rangers go out in the first round. Now, 
We can talk about the matchup with the Devils. I, I think their speed just overwhelmed the Rangers. We saw at five on five over the course of that series that the Rangers just, I don't think, had the personnel to match up with them. They gathered all of these stars, but I think what you heard Gerard Gallant hinting on in his press conference last night was, did they really build a well-rounded team or did they just kind of get into stargazing a little bit too much? I think that's a legitimate question, but over the course of that series, I think it's fair to say that Lindy Ruff outcoached Gerard Gallant. The Devils got better as the series went on, and the Rangers just failed to, to counter that. They got worse as the series went, went along. And so now it seems like it's a real possibility that Gallant could be the first one to sort of pay for the disappointment, and, and I think we'll get that answer at some point this week. Yeah, I, I think that decision is coming quickly. And um, I believe it's – correct me if I'm wrong here, Vince. I believe Gallant has two years left on his deal. Not that this is like, look, Calgary just ate two years of Daryl Sutter, so it's not you know, beyond the pale and listen to the, the pursuit of winning when you're someone like uh, the New York Rangers – you know, paying someone for two years not to coach isn't the the worst possible uh, thing to do. But I, I believe it's two years that Gallant has. Do you know that for a fact? I, yeah, I believe you are right, but that's not going to deter them from this decision. This is all going to be about no. what Chris Drury thinks no. they need to do to get over the hump. You know, they've got a young core, but they've also got a lot of players who are around 30, over 30. You know, they're star guys. They're, they're top-paid guys. And the window will not be endless for those guys. So this is very much an immediate concern. This is something that they want to win now. We've seen teams go through this where they take a step forward. Maybe they take a step back the season after that, and then they go on and they learn from it. And I know that that's the hope for the Rangers. It just so happens that next year is the 30-year anniversary of them winning the 94 Cup. So I know that would feel like a nice round number for them to finally get over that hump next year. But, you know, I think that they are going to attack this off season with urgency, both when it comes to the coaching decision and what they might do with the roster. Because again, they want to win now. They want results now. And, you know, Glant had a lot of success last year. You got to give him some credit for the way he navigated that run to the Eastern conference finals. When a lot of people weren't expecting it, I certainly don't want to take that away from him, but just my sense is that, there's a real possibility for change here. You know, um, one of the uh, the flashpoint players, and, and there were a couple, um, Artemi Panarin. Um, I, I mean, I'm stunned. I think a lot of us are stunned as well. Here's one of the elite players in the NHL. Uh, you know, we're used to, you know, uh, unbridled production out of Artemi Panarin. You needed a search warrant. Uh, to try to find Panarin. You could say the same thing about Mika Zibanejad. Um, Gerard Gallant, you know, uh, made a lot of comments, you know, about, you know, outside of Shosturkin and the kid line, there was nothing. Um, I thought Shosturkin was real good, by the way. No help. And one, to me, one of the enduring images outside of maybe that Truba hit on, on Timo Meyer last night, but, you know, maybe the the big enduring image for me from this series from the Rangers' point of view is Igor Shosturkin making a save, stopping the play, and then racing to the Rangers bench to yell at his teammates. You know, you reference mm-hmm. Jacob Truba, you know, throwing the helmet and screaming at the team uh, at that at that Chicago Blackhawks game. I mean, Shosturkin gave them everything and gave them every chance and tried to, you know, single-handedly, you know, drag this team into the in, into the battle, into the game, into the fights. But it seemed as if. I don't know. Is it too harsh to say that the Rangers weren't interested? Because that's what it seemed like. Like, Shosturkin was trying to do this whole thing almost all on his own. Like, I thought Kreider had great moments. But really, when you look at consistency from game to game through seven, to me, it was Shosturkin and then a whole bunch of question marks. How did you see it? Yeah, well, Shosturkin to me was the best player on either side in the series. And you, and you look at some of the analytics, they back that up. This this could have gotten ugly if it weren't for him. He, he stood on his head in pretty much every game. And there was a real feeling that resonated from the locker room. Multiple guys talked about it last night that they feel like they let him down. I know fans are drawing the comparisons to Henrik Lundqvist, who sort of dragged some of those teams that probably weren't all that good in front of him on some pretty deep playoff runs. So Shosturkin was great. The rest of the team definitely let him down. I wouldn't go so far as to say they don't care. Those, a lot of those guys care a lot. I mean, if you saw how distraught Kreider and Zabanajad and some of those guys in that locker room were last night, I don't think it was a lack of want 
But again, I think that when you look at the construction of this roster, especially in a matchup against a team like the Devils, it's something I've written about a handful of times over the course of the season, and I really think it's at the forefront of everybody's minds right now. But the Rangers assembled all of this star talent. But how much of a team did they build? They were better last year when they had guys like Andrew Kopp and Frank Vetrano, who were specific role players that were targeted because they were, they were suited in a certain spot. And I think the lack of foot speed mm. top to bottom on this Rangers roster was exposed against a team like the Devils. I mean, you look at five on five, the Rangers were smothered by them in this series. Their forecheck was in their face. They were all over them in the neutral zone. They got how many turnovers and, and opportunities that led to odd man rushes against. It seemed like the Devils had possession of the puck, especially in these last few games, for an overwhelming amount of time. And at five on five, the Rangers were exposed. And you look at some of the analytics, you know, they were able to cover up these blemishes the last two years in a lot of ways because of the strong goaltending and because they were, they've been such a good special teams team. But at five on five, if you look at expected goals and things like that, they're a mediocre team and they've been that for two years. They really rank in the middle of the league. So they were relying on these star players to come through with some timely goals and Igor to stand on his head. But that might not be a recipe for sustained success. And what I think they're really going to have to examine this offseason is how do they get more, more grinders, more guys that, with the speed that can implement that type of forechecking system that wins in the playoffs? Because right now I just don't think they have a balanced enough roster with, with those kind of guys who, who can win at this time of year. You know this Ranger team, and you know this Ranger organization, and you know, well, just to be blunt, Vince, you know New York. And you know how sports teams operate in New York. First of all, it's the biggest stage. It's the brightest lights. It's the biggest stars. Like, that's New York, baby. Like, that's that's it. And I can't help but wondering at the end of all of this where sometimes, sometimes the answer might be to do a number of small tactical things. This is still New York. And at the end of it, I, I look at it and say... I can understand the philosophy behind, you know, plugging in holes and filling with some specialists and looking at team building. But then I say, this is New York, and I can see them just saying, you know what? Drury might just call up Kevin Chevaldeoff and say, what's it going to take to get Pierre-Luc Dubois? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, Jeff, though, they got to learn their lesson at some point. We just talked about how last year they targeted specific role players like Kopp and Petrano not exactly household names, but guys that were really valuable for them and how much and how well that worked. And then you look this year, they went for the big splashes. They went for Patrick Kane. They went for Vladimir Tarasenko, and they were out in the first round. So I think they need to be more calculated about what they target. I am, though, very curious to see where, where they go from here. I mean, you, you touched on Panarin. I didn't really answer that question before. There are legitimate concerns, both with the fan base and with the organization, about how he's performed in the playoffs. Now, regular season, he has completely changed the culture of this team. You could argue he's been one of the best free agent signings in franchise history. He's led the team in regular season points four years in a row, but he was a ghost in the playoffs this year. And I know that even last year, he had 16 points in 20 playoff games, but he was not happy with how he played. The Rangers were not happy with how he played. When the space gets tighter and he's not able to use his dynamic playmaking skills and open ice, it just seems like it's pretty easy to bottle him up. And I also think there's a little bit of a crisis of confidence going on where he's sort of battling, you know, when do I open things up and let my skills shine and take the risks that make me a special player? And when do I need to play things safely? And I think that's been a give and take that he's really struggled with in these playoff years. And, he had two secondary assists in game one, and then he went six straight games without a point. He has not gone six games without a point consecutively at mm-hmm. any previous point in his career. So this was a big eye-opening experience for him. He's got a no-movement clause. I, I certainly am not predicting that the Rangers are going to trade him, but it feels right. like would they you know, have a conversation with him about the direction it's heading? Maybe it's more of a possibility than it ever has been in the past. You know, I could see them doing something – a guy like Barclay Gaudreau is someone I would keep an eye on. You know, he brings a lot of the grit and defensive ability that they value and they probably need more of. But you're also paying $3.6 million a year for a fourth liner. If you were able to move that salary, that would maybe open up some slots where you could target guys that would add speed to this lineup. I mean, 
look at what the Devils brought in. They bring in guys like Eric Halla and Tomas Tatar. Those aren't big star names, but they fit the system that they want to play. So I think the Rangers are going to need to do some things like that. And the last thing that I would touch on that I'm curious to see how this plays out. I'm not predicting they're going to do this, but I wonder if they'll talk about it. The young guys, a Lafreniere, who's an RFA this season, a Capo Caco, would they explore the possibility of shaking things up with a guy like that? I don't know, but I think everything's on the table right now, and I think these are all conversations that are going to be had. I, I would be surprised if they just run it back with the same guys next year. Whether it's clearing a little salary cap space and trying to plug holes with some speed guys that are maybe a little bit cheaper but would fill roles, that's a distinct possibility. Mm -hmm. But could there be a bigger shakeup coming? It's certainly something that we can't rule out. Could be a wild one in New York, comma, again. Uh, Vince, you're the best. Thanks, uh, as always. And I I do have a feeling we'll be checking back soon. Uh, Thanks, as always, for stopping by the show today. Yeah, no problem, Jeff. Happy to do it. He is uh, the great Vince Bercogliano from Lohad breaking down the situation with the Rangers. They bow out in the first round, uh, losing seven against the New Jersey Devils, who win the Battle of the Hudson. The Devils move on. The Rangers go home to question marks. Uh, we're going to pause, and we're going to come back with Barry Keane. Barry is a uh, longtime drummer for the uh, the now late Cord Lightfoot, uh, who passed away yesterday at the age of 84. We'll talk some stories about Gordon Lightfoot and Gordon and that band's association uh, with hockey. And there are a number of stories where Gordon Lightfoot and hockey intersect. We'll talk about plenty of those with Barry Keene in moments. Merrick's show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Keep it here. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Songs we'll listen to for the rest of our lives. Um, the passing of Gordon Lightfoot and the memories and the stories keep uh, pouring in. Thanks to everyone who's uh, contributed. Uh, sent me DMs, sent me tweets, texts about uh, about Gordon Lightfoot and their experiences um, with him and around him. I've been reading some of them, and I want to bring aboard now his his longtime drummer and someone I'm proud to call a uh, call a friend, the great Barry Keane. Barry, how are you today? I know it's a a very difficult time for you, the band, um, certainly Gordon's family. I I appreciate the time today. How are you? Terribly sad day, of course, obviously, Jeff. But you know. Getting a chance to talk to you and especially getting a chance to talk to you about Gordon makes it a little bit better. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I understand that. And, you know, I've been you know, sharing some stories that people have sent in. I, I just got a really special one here that I want to share with you, Barry, and share with our listeners slash viewers. And this comes from Eric Tehachik, um, who we all remember from Hockey Night in Canada. He writes for The Athletic now. He used to write for The Globe and Mail as well. Hockey News. Um, hey, Jeff, Eric Dehatchik here. I saw Gordon Lightfoot perform probably 20 times, mostly at those Massey Hall residences in the 70s when I was attending Scarborough College. I used to get tickets via mail order and saw him twice the week they debuted Edmund Fitzgerald, once from row four, then two days later with my sister from row 10. Never seen anything like it before or since. He introduced it, was a new song, explained the background, played it and then there was just stunned silence from the audience for the count of about two steamboats then the place erupted gordon seemed genuinely taken aback because new material never really does well even for the greatest singers anyway when i went back two days later with my sister i was paying really close attention to see if my original reaction to the song would be duplicated as the saturday show it was Unbelievable. The only other time I remember the reaction to an event as much as the event itself was being in the seats of the Maple Leaf Gardens for the Canada-Sweden-Canada Cup game when Borja Salming got that eight-minute ovation. And if memory serves, both of these events occurred in 1976. A day like today, losing Gordon Lightfoot makes you reflective and grateful for the gift he gave us all. Hope you are well, Eric Dehatchik. 
I know a lot of people have shared stories with you over the years. You've told me plenty, Barry. But when you hear things like that, stories about something as specific as, you know, the the debut of the wreck um, at, at Massey Hall, etc. I know a lot of people have talked to you about Gordon. But what goes through your mind, Barry, when you hear these stories? Oh, there's just, you know, we've gotten to meet so many people who have so many stories, Jeff, and so many things that they, you know, relate the rest of their lives to Gordon Lightfoot music. I remember distinctly coming out the backstage door maybe like 10 years ago, and there was a gentleman out there with a pen in hand and a CD, and he stopped me and said, do you think it would be possible for me to say hello to Gordon? And I'm thinking like, yeah, well, whatever, you know. And he said, I was in Vietnam, and when I was in the trenches, it was his music that got me through. Well, you know, you hear a story like that, Jeff, and it's it takes it to a whole, a whole yeah. you know, you hear about, yeah, we played beautiful at my wedding, and you hear other stories like that. But sure. here's a gentleman who got through the Vietnam War listening to Gordon's music. It's um, a lot, and, and it's not just Canadians. It's it's a lot of people that have stories like that about Gordon and about Gordon's music. And I'll be honest with you, Barry. For the longest time, I've always tried to figure out why. Like, what is it about Gordon's music? Um, I mean, the 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 voice is is haunting, and it and it stays with you. Um, the melodies are are beautiful. The compositions, like the the, the way the songs are crafted, uh, are just so gorgeous. Yet when you listen to them, at least at, at at first listen, they sound quite simple. But is there anything that you've been able to discern? I mean, traveled with him, worked with him, were around him for for decades. Like what what was it about Gordon Lightfoot's? I can't believe I just used the word was. It just hits you every now and then that he's passed. Um, what was it about Gordon's music, do you think, that, that people attach to almost instantly? I really think it was the combination of all the things you just mentioned. I think uh, the sound of the voice um, affected so many people in such a different ways. And then there's the lyrics and the interpretation of the lyrics. And you talk to Gord about you know, some of the songs he wrote. And I'd try to figure out what the heck he was talking about, and I'd ask him, and and many (laughs) times he'd say, I don't know. Like it was, maybe it was just a rhyming word, or maybe it was a phrase that he had heard, but he was able to craft these things so magnificently. And and the combination of uh, his presence, his character, his voice, his guitar playing, uh, the lyrics, the music, I think it was really, it was a combination of all those things. Um, you know, I, uh, you must have been sick of me always asking this question. Like whenever I would go to see Gordon at, at, uh, at Massey Hall, uh, usually I'd talk to you and uh, my, my one question was always, are you going to play Railroad Trilogy tonight? And sometimes you would laugh and say, yes, don't worry, it's in the lineup. And sometimes like, well, we're not, we're not quite sure. Um, I have always, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Did you have, as a drummer, a favorite Gordon Lightfoot song to play live? Well, there were quite a few of them. And um, I have to admit it, it was uh, kind of an acquired taste for me. And I'll, I can talk about that, but... Um, an appreciation for Gord's music. And then when you're asked to make a record, like you have to actually contribute to this song. Mm -hmm. And you want to do something that's, you know, that fits the song. You certainly don't want to take away from the song. But um, if I had to mention, bring it down to one song, probably because of the story that went behind the writing of the song, probably because of the story about recording the song, and probably because of, you know, there are a few drums in it, would have to be the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Hmm. What is it about that one that endures? First of all, I, lo- I love songs that tell a story. I think we, we all do. Um, and this this, and this is a song we're going to always listen to, and it's going to have a very specific um, and, and beautiful place in, in Canadian music history. But what is it about that song that even still to this day 
to this day, Barry, resonates with people. Yeah, it has to be, I mean, it has to be the story and the combination of how Gordon presented the story, the way he crafted the song. I mean, it's just, you know, ice water mansions. Where does that come from? Like, uh, just uh, the love of God goes. Where does the love of God goes? Just the the lyrics, the presentation, but then behind it is the actual story of 29 men losing their lives on the Great Lakes. And he's right. uh, Many people have pointed out that I don't think anybody would have paid any attention to the story beyond maybe a day or, you know, a couple of news cycles later about an accident, a boating accident in the Great Lakes. But Gordon brought it to life and all of the families that were involved, all the families that Gordon got to know and, um, you know, from Wisconsin and Minnesota and wherever the families were from, and they would come out to shows. And it was, it was so touching Mm. that he had put, put these people in, in, in the world's memory that now it really was an event and just to kind of put it into another perspective, I got a phone call last year from Sweden from uh, a guy that we both know, I'm sure Rob Stauber, the old, you know, the goalie. Oh, yeah, the, goalie, right? yeah. Yeah, Rob Stauber. Yeah. I got to yeah. know Rob because my son went to uh, his goalie clinics in in Minnesota. Anyway, Rob took the time to call me from Sweden. He was over there with the... U.S. World's women's hockey team. He was the head coach. He had to call me to tell me that he just heard the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald on the radio in Sweden. And it, it, oh, wow. it's like, it just, you know, it really was a, <laughs> it brought the attention to this event worldwide. And the song is haunting. There's no doubt. Oh, yeah. So much of his uh, of of Gord's work uh, is um, haunting. Um, you know, there's um, there's a, there's a lot of you know interesting intersections as well um, between Gordon Lightfoot, the band, the music, and the world of hockey. You know, this morning Heather Hiscox on CBC News Network had Daryl Sittler on, former captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and he told the stories about you know Gordon Lightfoot sitting behind the bench at Maple Leaf Gardens and the guys going to Bigliardi's on Church after for steaks and scotch and beers, and then back to Rosedale to Gordon's house for music and a couple of more drinks and just a just a great time um musicians uh, i've always felt that musicians want to be athletes and athletes want to be musicians and there's always that cozy relationship but do you have a couple of stories that you could share i mean you've already shared plenty with me privately of um gordon lightfoot yourself and the world of hockey and how they've intersected over the years well, this is a hockey show after all, Jeff, so yeah, I, I, <laughs> you don't have to twist my arm very much to get me to tell a story or two, especially about Gord. But yeah, Gord was the honorary captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't know if people know that. And he used to hang out in the hot stove lounge with King Clancy and Harold Ballard and Billy Ballard. Wow. Bill Bill used to promote. He promoted a number of our shows across the country, and we got to know Billy. Um, It's kind of a quick, funny story, and I'll get to some hockey ones real quick. But we were playing at the Metro Center, you know, the hockey rink in Halifax many years ago, and there was a bomb threat. And Billy came backstage while the opening act, Colleen Peterson, was playing. And Bill came to Gord uh, in our dressing room and said, there's been a bomb threat. We don't know whether to take it seriously or not, or like, what do you want to do? And Gord said, we're going to play. And Bill said, like, you know, there might be a bomb in the building. Gord said, we're going to (laughs) play. So anyway, Bill Bill went out and interrupted Colleen on stage. Uh, The visual of this, I'll never forget, came on stage and announced to the crowd, he said, we feel it uh, our duty to let you people know there has been a bomb threat. And we don't know how serious it is, 
but we have decided to go on with the show. And, of course, everybody cheered. And I'll never forget the look on Colleen Peterson's face was, what do you mean we? <laughs> it was like, where does, where does we come from? So, anyway, yeah, uh, hockey stories, absolutely. Playing in Philadelphia in the early 80s, we're playing at a one of those great big outdoor venues called the Robin Hood Dell and after the show, I remember walking past the door that connected the house with backstage, and a security guard was talking to somebody on the other side, and he came back and he saw me and he because I was there, and he said, "There's some guys here who want to come back and say hi to Gordon." I said, "Well, who are they? Do they have passes?" And he said, "Well, they claim to be with the flyers." And I said, "Well, are they?" He said, I think I saw Bobby Clark. And I said, well, yeah, let him in. So anyway, five or six, I think it was six of the Flyers came backstage. And Gord said, told him what hotel we were at and said, if you want to come over, let's have a beer. And sure enough, Bobby Clark, Bill Barber, Rick McLeish, Brad McCrimmon, Mark Howell, and of course the coach, Pat Quinn, Gord and I sat at a table in a bar just trading stories. And for me, as a hockey fan, watching these guys on TV, you know, as a youngster and growing up watching hockey, and these were idols and heroes, and sitting there having a beer and having these guys ask me questions about what I did. (laughs) And, I mean, talk about lucky and fortunate. I'm sitting there at one point. I think it was Mark Howe and Brad McCrimmon were having an argument. Somehow it came up. Who was the toughest guy to fight? And it was either Orlan Curtinback or Ben Wilson. And then the six of the Flyers are all arguing about... Well, you know the size of Ben Wilson's hands, Ben. He's got the biggest paws in there. Yeah, but hurting back, you'd have to shoot him if you wanted to. Like, And here I am. I'm privileged to hear these guys talking, yeah. you know, in private about something like that. It was, It's kind of surreal. Listen, um, we have about a, a minute 30 left here. I wanted to ask you, if, if you can do it in 60 seconds, uh, bless you, Barry. Um, the Massey Hall shows, those were staples for decades and magical shows. And so much of my personal history is wrapped up in a lot of those shows. And I've, I've talked to you about that uh, countless times. Um, what was special about Gordon shows at Massey Hall from your point of view? We got about 60 seconds. Yeah, I think I can squeeze it in. Um the building itself, just the sound of the stage, the sound of that building, the fact that it was hometown, um, the people there, we saw the same people, and Nancy and Gary and, and Mike, and just the same people that worked at Massey Hall and made us feel so much at home. And the crowd, of course, because it's the hometown uh, the crowd, I mean, everything just fed off everything else, and it just made it completely um, uh, a wonderful event all around. It was outstanding. Um, a lot of wonderful memories. I know this is a very difficult time. Barry, thank you, as always, uh, for stopping by, and specifically today as we look back on uh, the life, the career, the music uh, of the great Gordon Lightfoot. Barry, you're a big part of all of it. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Much appreciated. Thank you for asking, Jeff, and it's always a pleasure talking to you, man. So good. Barry Keane, a uh, longtime drummer for Gordon Lightfoot. The music's all there, folks. If you're a new fan, if you are never heard Gordon Lightfoot before, or if you're an older fan and maybe you haven't listened to Gordon Lightfoot for a long time, probably a good day to drop the needle. People still do that? Yeah, of course they do. Or off to Spotify. And uh, this is some great old Gordon Lightfoot songs. And think back to um, how much he contributed to the, uh, the musical landscape of this country uh, for a number of decades. I want to thank everyone for being part of the program today. Uh, special thanks to Barry Keane. Uh, Vince Mercogliano, Dave Amber, John Forsland, Elliot Friedman, Jen Rolnick, thank you very much. Lance Kennedy, Matt Marchese, and again, thank you, Barry Keane, for sharing memories of the late Gordon Lightfoot. We're back tomorrow.